Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the unprecedented Hawaii leak from the National Security Council and the inquiry that is now underway. Plus, we'll be discussing the launch of Change UK's European Parliament election campaign and ask whether the party is struggling somewhat. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, defence and security editor, David Bond, columnist Robert Shrimsley and deputy opinion editor, Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe or leave us a positive review. Parliament returned after the Easter weekend to find that the government had made a crucial decision about the country's 5G cellular network. After weeks and months of discussions, the National Security Council concluded on Tuesday that it could allow the Chinese firm Huawei to participate in some of the network's construction. But the NSC never leaks, and this story on the front page of the Daily Telegraph set off a flurry of finger-pointing, and a leak inquiry is now underway to find out who was the culprit. David Bond, let's begin with the background on this Huawei story. So the UK currently has 4G cellular network, which we all enjoy in our phones, iPads, to watch videos, listen to music and all the rest of it. 5G is the next generation of the network and there's been all sorts of controversy about who and what should be involved in building it. Can you try and explain to us what's been going on? I'll give it a shot. So 5G is going to be much faster. You're going to be able to stream videos and download things within a blink of an eye, whereas waiting... Uh, not waiting for the buffer on these things as you as you have at the moment so it's going to be much more about being connected to the internet of things which you know as we're seeing you know sort of devices in the home controlling every part of our life so it's incredibly important it is also much more vulnerable there is um, you know it's much more vulnerable to attack uh, from cyber hackers potentially so it's hugely important and this debate has been rumbling for quite a long time now as to who will provide the UK's next generation telecoms network Huawei are the both the cheapest and probably the best in the market at the moment but the US are very concerned about uh, giving a Chinese company with deep roots in the Chinese state access to some of the more sensitive parts of the network so this debate has been going on for a long time UK intelligence chiefs cyber security specialists over at the NCSC and GCHQ have said that they believe they can mitigate the risk they have communicated that to the government. They've produced a, a report on it. And as you say, the National Security Council finally decided this week that in principle they will give access to Huawei for the more sort of non-sensitive parts of the network. So this also feeds into Britain's relationship with its intelligence allies, the so-called Five Eyes Network. A lot of those countries have made the opposite decision to Britain, that America, as you mentioned, Australia and New Zealand have been far more sceptical about Huawei from the people you've spoken to in the security intelligence community. Why did the UK make a different decision? 
Well, the key thing here is about the UK's relationship with the US and the US belief that they will not countenance Huawei in their 5G networks. Um, I spoke this week to Rob Joyce, who is the National Security Agency's cyber security advisor, and they are very clear they are not going to hand what he described as a loaded gun to China. So they have always been emphatically against the idea of having them in the network in any way. What's different for the UK is two things. One, they really genuinely believe that they've worked with Huawei for a long time. You know, they've been over here in our system for like 10, 15 years. They have a system for monitoring that. They have um, an evaluation centre which tests the kit and the software. And although it's found some pretty alarming things, they believe they are confident that they can mitigate it. So I think that's point one. The second point is that there is a different level of capability here in terms of building future telecoms networks. And, you know, the UK cannot just go, right, well, we're not going to take it from China, which is, by the way, the cheapest and probably the best uh, providing this kit. They can't just suddenly say, well, we'll just build our own. So they are reliant on China. And of course, there's a much bigger debate, which I'm sure George will come in on, which is, you know, the sort of relationship from a trading point of view that this country wants to have with China. Yes, that's a very good tea in there. George Parker, of course, this is about security and intelligence, but it's also about the UK's relationship with China. And we've gone through so many iterations of this that under David Cam. And George Osborne, there was the golden handshake, the era of kowtowing to China, where it was basically, we'll go along with anything, just give us the cash, give us the trade, give us the investment, and everyone will be happy. Theresa May comes into government and takes a more sceptical view. And the most infamous point of that was the Hinkley Point power station, which again is built with Chinese technology and Chinese backing. And the government almost cancelled that. It put a pause on it and then went ahead with it anyway. And the Huawei decision feeds into into that, does the UK want to work with China and buy its kit and, you know, work closely with it or does it not want to? Yeah, I mean, you're going to a good pricey there of the ups and downs of the, this relationship. And, you know, you left out the, the thing at the start of the Cameron era where Cameron met the Dalai Lama and that put the British relationship with China into a deep freeze for a number of years. And I was on a trip with George Osborne to China where he, it was the sort of highlight of the whole engagement strategy, the golden era, where he basically said access all areas to the UK economy, nuclear power stations, fine, railways, fine. And of course, this one we're talking about here, the, the most sensitive of all access to, to data. And so although the National Security Council was discussing Huawei involvement in 5G on a security basis, and I'm told that it would be crude and inappropriate to discuss economic considerations at the NSC, it was the unspoken truth behind that meeting, not least because the Chancellor of the Exchequer was heading to Beijing two days later to attend a conference on the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. So clearly, you know, the involvement of Huawei in the 5G network, the signal that sends out to other countries in the West about the acceptability or otherwise of that happening was a huge signal to the Chinese that we were ready to try and rebuild some quite strained relations. So let's go to this NSC meeting on Tuesday then. The National Security Council was set up in 2010 by David Cameron, mirroring the similar body in America. And it was a place that was seen as sacrosanct in terms of discussions of very high-level security topics. It's ministers, heads of the intelligence services and civil servants who sit in this body. They had this meeting on Tuesday where, as David said, the intelligence was put forward from the community saying, this is a manageable risk, we should do this. There was probably unspoken things there about trade and economic, and the government went ahead with it. And then, amazingly, on Wednesday morning, it was emblazoned on the front page of the Daily Telegraph without an official announcement and nobody had been told that allies hadn't been told parliament hadn't been told the government had made an announcement and some ministers in fact say that the final final decision has still not finally been made on this cue an awful lot of anger in westminster yeah i mean as you say this is the most 
sensitive inner council of the government. We've become accustomed in the last year or two to the cabinet becoming incredibly leaky and, as the chief whip said, the least disciplined cabinet of modern times. But this is a different level. The idea of information leaking from this body where highly classified material is discussed was seen as out of the ordinary, something which had to be stamped on very hard. And Sir Mark Sebwell, who's the cabinet secretary, top civil servant in the land, but also doubles up as the national security adviser, hit the roof was absolutely furious. Uh, And a day later, he announced he was going to conduct a formal leak inquiry. Now, who is to blame for this? It started this great whodunit sort of game in in Westminster. And it was within a matter of hours that people in number 10 were pointing the finger at ministers who might have ambitions to succeed Theresa May as prime minister. Were they putting this into the public domain as a way of showing that they were security hawks, people prepared to stand up against China, against a weak vacillating, equivocal Prime Minister Theresa May. That was the way the story was presented in the Daily Telegraph. Downing Street were furious. Individuals were named. We're not going to talk about them on this podcast because potentially you get into legal issues. But there is a blame game around Whitehall. I've heard several names being mentioned as being surely the person who, who leaked this. Um, some ministers suggesting maybe it came from the civil service, which I think is extremely unlikely in this situation. And David, how damaging was the leak, though? Because this, if this decision was made, it was ultimately going to be announced at some point anyway. And it, so it's not confidential in that it was always going to come out there. So does it really matter? Well, I think that's a very good question, because actually, I think the leak is a bit of a distraction from the sort of the the main story. And if I think it's about PR, actually. So I think what really annoyed Mark Sedwell and what really annoyed Theresa May, I suspect, is that they had cooked up a plan to present a decision which has been really in the works for a very long time. I mean, this goes back months that they had made the decision at the top of the intelligence community that they could mitigate the risk and that the government was edging towards coming up with this sort of fudgy decision where it was like, you know, yes, we will allow Huawei in, but then not allowed to go in the um, you know the, the critical national security parts of the infrastructure and they won't be able to come in the, the the core of the 5G telecom network but I think what the government wanted to do was present it as a you know sort of conditional decision we're being very tough on Huawei they're not going to be allowed to... and of course what the leak did is it made it look like Theresa May was weak that she was allowing something which was a national security risk to happen she wasn't standing up to China and I think that's what really annoyed them. And now all they've done is they've guaranteed more weeks of bad headlines about this, this problematic decision, which they cannot reach. We've, we've, of course, got this telecoms market review, which is being done by Jeremy Wright, uh, the culture secretary. And I think genuinely there were probably discussions about whether they bother going ahead with that now because the kind of the, the, the material decision is now so public. Mm. And what was the response from uh, the UK's allies? Because in a fantastic time, there was a conference in Glasgow of the Five Eyes Intelligence Partners. So I'm sure the timing of the leak fed into the, the annoyance uh, due to the fact that was taking place right at the moment. This decision was out there. Well, whoever leaked it understood the significance of what was happening the next day in Glasgow. And I was up there or just didn't realise how badly that would play out. You had Jeremy Fleming, who is the director of GCHQ, giving a keynote address to this cyber security conference, which is organised by GCHQ and the National Cyber Security Centre. You had 
the Five Eyes Alliance, as you say, the cybersecurity chiefs for those 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 countries, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, the US and the UK, all on a stage for the first time on UK soil. And, you know, it was very, very embarrassing and it was very damaging. And they tried to put a united front on and say, although there are differences, we can work them through. This alliance goes back many years. And I think that's true, by the way. I do think that they will work through this, even though the Americans are not happy. But it totally overshadowed that first day of the conference. And George, it really just kind of speaks to the dysfunction in Theresa May's government at the way that this has happened. And every single thing that happens in Westminster now has really been seen through the prism of who is going to be the next prime minister, that whether it's Brexit, whether it's domestic policy, there's not much of that, or whether it's this kind of decision, that the people who are keen to succeed Theresa May have been very quick out of the traps to say it wasn't them, that, you know, we were at a press gallery lunch where Jeremy Hunt said some very strong words, unequivocally, it was not me and it was no one in my team, and this is very bad for our democratic process. Sajid Javid, again, very strong lines saying it's not him. Gavin Williamson, the Defence Secretary, again saying, no, it wasn't me. So all these people are getting out of the traps quickly to try and distance themselves because they know that if, you know, we have got this leak inquiry and if anyone is seen as potentially a suspect in this, it will be very damaging for their prospects. Yeah, I mean, this is what happens when you have no leadership and that's the problem. The, the, the country now is without leadership and this is the probably the most symbolic uh, sign of that you know, lack of functionality at the heart of government. The fact you can't have a conversation about national security without it leaking into the, the newspapers. And as you say, it's all seen through the prism of the leadership. Who's the hard man? Who's going to stand up to China? And it's created an atmosphere of distrust, uh, an atmosphere of acrimony. And people say it can't go on. The problem is no one can find a way of stopping it. It's a Brexit virus, which has basically now debilitated the entire body politic of, in Britain. And it's, uh, it's a pretty worrying situation. And of course, George, leak inquiries happen all the time. That This is not the first one. There was one in the Cameron government to do with Rupert Murdoch and the decision making to do um, with whether uh, he'd be allowed to take over B Sky B. And that was a similar process of decisions leaking. And at the time, then Cabinet Secretary Jeremy Hayward was very annoyed about it. But it'd be very hard to actually get to the bottom of who it is because so many people within government, including ministers, officials and civil servants, have access to the debates about Hawaii. You know, do you think this will ever go anywhere or is it more a symbolic thing for Mark Sedwell to just try and look tough and to try and make sure that leaking from the NSC doesn't become the new norm? Well, I think there's certainly a, an element of that, the fact that you've got to take a stand at some point, otherwise you have anarchy. You can't run a government if every single discussion is leaked immediately to the newspaper. So you can see why Mark Sedwell's making a stand. On the other hand, it's a running joke that these leak inquiries hardly ever, if ever, find the culprits. You know, he's asked, Mark Sedwell has asked ministers and their special advisers and their officials to make available their emails and their phone records and all the rest of it but these inquiries never in my experience actually result in a in a leaker being found and of course in the event that this one does it could be an incredibly serious matter for the individual who if he or she is actually identified i think it's unlikely to happen but i think mark said felt in the end that something had to be done they had to make a stand I mean, I think there is a distinction here about the... So, so there's, there's been lots of discussion since the leak and since the story broke about, you know, will intelligence chiefs, will the heads of MI6, MI5, GCHQ now feel comfortable about sharing really top secret intelligence in those meetings, which of course they have to do. But ultimately they are advisors to ministers.
masters. They are there to serve their masters, their political masters. So I don't think in the long run they have a choice. But we're not talking about critical intelligence coming out here. We're talking about a sort of political decision. And for ages now, the intelligence agencies have been saying to me, look, you know, we are just there to provide advice. We give our best assessment of what we think the risk picture is. And then it's up to politicians to make the decision. Mm. And so I think in one sense, you know, we are all getting very worked up about how serious this is, the leak from the NSC. And it is serious. And it's definitely justifiable that you have to draw a line. But I think, as I said before, you know, it's going to become such a distraction that I really wonder whether it's going to serve the government any good in the long run. And finally, David, what's going to happen next in terms of the timeline for the 5G network? Because as you said, there is this review going on. The government has not commented. It doesn't comment on leaks or leak inquiries. So we've heard nothing from Downing Street on that. What's the sort of frame for the a decision being made and the building of the 5G network to commence? Well, yesterday, by the time that the sort of government had managed to sort of slightly get back a semblance of stability around the story, David Liddington, the de facto deputy PM, he was up in Glasgow doing a speech and he made very clear that at some point Jeremy Wright will go to Parliament and he will announce the outcome of this this telecoms market review. And although it may not say specifically what the decision is on Huawei within there, I think you'll see the indications it will be about sort of having multiple markets vendors, you know, not having high risk vendors in the actual core of the future 5G network. So I think, you know, they've been promising this would come in spring. We're now firmly into spring and there's still no sign of it. But I would think in the next couple of weeks, we'll probably see that uh, report come out. The Independent Group, also known as the Tiggers, Change UK and the Remain Alliance, launched their European Parliament election campaign in Bristol this week. The party, which has at least four names and four different colours to its branding, announced some star candidates, including former BBC presenter Gavin Esler and Rachel Johnson, the journalist and sister of former Foreign Secretary Boris. But what has the party made a flaw by not doing a deal with the Liberal Democrats? And is it all just a bit shambolic. So Miranda Green, the Change UK is they're now called as a political party. They were called the independent group when those eight Labour MPs split off from their party plus three Conservatives. They rebranded themselves into this party that the name's not very good for a start. And no, it feeds into this whole idea that this thing that was meant to be the new centrist force in British politics that was going to take advantage of the gap between the Conservatives on the right and Labour on the left is not really doing a particularly good job of it. They've done well in the candidates and getting those big names as we saw this week but there's this growing sense that it's just not quite together enough to do well in the European Parliament elections on May the 23rd. So it's very interesting and when they first split off from their respective big parties, let's not forget that they immediately made a difference because they managed to get Labour to to make a shift on Brexit policy. A bit towards a second referendum. A bit towards a second referendum. And also they did rightly sort of become the kind of fulcrum for anger against the Labour leadership on anti-Semitism. So, you know, what they did was brave and principled and important at the time back in February. But... Since then, it's sort of slightly got the feeling of the air coming out of a balloon, which which is usually how things fail in politics rather than a kind of 
explosion, actually. And I think part of the problem is how they define themselves and also kind of inconsistencies in what they're up to. They're not standing at all in the local elections. They're standing in every region for the European elections. But as you've said, they have made it very clear they don't want any sort of pact, alliance, agreement, common messaging, anything with either the Lib Dems, the Greens, the SNP or any of the other Remain pro-Remain parties. And this is a huge tactical error that may also turn out to be a strategic error in my view. I think part of it is because they don't really see the little parties, of which they are one now, can only sort of get a few percent each, which doesn't add up to very much when you're wanting to become a counterbalance to Nigel Farage, who's, you know, reigns supreme at the moment. Also, I think personally that they've got a psychological problem. You know, the MPs inside Change UK come from either the Tory party or the Labour party. They are used to big party politics. When you're a small party, you, you're in a completely different ball game and you have to be much cleverer. And you also have to realise that you're sort of at the mercy of larger forces. You can't make the political weather. So I think they think they're the earthquake but actually they're a tremor in the various upheavals that are going on in politics and it's causing them to make the wrong decisions. I think Robert Shrimsley, one thing that struck me, if you compare Change UK to the Brexit party, the Brexit party has got a very simple, clear message which is just get us out of the EU it hasn't gone into any details about policies or what it stands for it is simply about this one clear thing, it obviously brushes over a lot of the complications of Brexit, but to the electorate it's quite straightforward and they're using the same language as Change UK of we're going to do things differently, change politics, it's that kind of thing. But whereas the Brexit party is putting Brexit first and change second, Change UK have got it the other way around and they're sort of trying to put the cart before the horse in this thing. And if they're not too careful, they could end up with no MEPs and that would kill the party stone dead, you would think. Yeah, I mean, I think they've got some serious problems. The fundamental one, I think, for Change UK is that they're playing two different games at the same time. On the one hand... They're fighting against Brexit and specifically for a referendum. On the other hand, they're also trying to use these elections to, re- to establish themselves as a force in British politics, as a party to be reckoned with and to get their brand up, which would be fine if they had lots of other policies. But the thing is, they are actually at the moment a single issue party, which is the European Union and the referendum. So they're trying to have it both ways and in great danger of having it neither way. And if you look at the opinion polling, it's very clear what the dangers are for them. Um, The FT does a poll of polls and aggregates these things. And we reckon at the moment that the Lib Dems and Change UK between them are probably good for about 15, 15 15.5% share of the vote. And at the moment, that would equate to something like 10 seats in the European election, six for the Lib Dems and four for Change UK. So that puts them on 10. The Brexit Party is on 12 seats. The Conservatives currently on 14 and Labour way ahead on 22 as things stand. But if they had been able to get into an alliance, a single issue alliance fighting about Remain and referendum, their polling would probably be up. The Greens would be in there too. That would already put them over 20%. And they'd be in a serious shot of coming at least second, finishing ahead of the Brexit Party and also putting the Labour Party really on the spot because they're saying we're the Remain Party. The Labour Party is trying still to be both the Remain and the, the Leave Party. And I think the Labour Party would see its vote share falling in many areas. So instead of playing for maximum political advantage globally and strategically, they've gone for a tactical approach to try and establish their own brand. And thus far, you have to say it looks like a mistake. I think that's completely right. And also, of course, if they had done what not just we ourselves at the FT, but also several other newspapers, it has to, has to be said, have been asking them to do and actually forming a, a sort of popular Remain front, as it were, 
it would have quite comfortably for them obscured some of their other structural problems. Um, you know, that Robert, you've described the fact that they haven't really got that much to say on any other topic other than Brexit at the moment. But also, I think they've got a much deeper problem, which is that they started as a split away from the Labour Party, which has gone dramatically to the left under Jeremy Corbyn. That is a kind of coherent project of itself. Then by taking in a sort of handful of disgruntled Romani Tories, admittedly two of them, you could argue, aren't really conservative because they were selected by open primaries in their areas and actually their views are very sort of centrist anyway. But at least one of them is, a. I mean, Anna Subri I would describe as a proper conservative, even though she's very pro-EU. That's actually quite a problem for them. I've actually spoken to several people who are that sort of disgruntled former Labour moderate voter and they are now very confused as to what Change UK is. You know, is it the reasonable alternative Labour Party or is it something else that has Tories in it? And actually, I think that as we go forward will become more of a problem for them. Obviously, they've got Stephen Dorrell, former Conservative Secretary of State for Health, now standing as an MEP. It can start to look a bit incoherent and trying to do well in the Euro elections in alliance with these other smaller parties would actually have helped them establish themselves in a way that would have, would, would have got, got them past those other difficulties. So just to give them a slight bit of room here on the issue of doing an electoral pact, that it would have actually been quite practically difficult given the timings here because we didn't know these European elections were going to happen until a couple of weeks ago. They still might not, but we sort of take it the assumption that they are. And the party has said that to put a joint list together to the Electoral Commission in this time would have been very difficult. The other th- alternative they could have done is say to the Liberal Democrats, you know, Miranda, they could have said, we won't stand in the Southwest, say, where the Lib Dems traditionally poll well, and in return you won't stand here. So in each region you could have had a clear run for a Remain party and produced all of that. The Tigs decided not to do that and their reason for that was they don't. They claim to not know how well they poll in different regions but that doesn't strike me as accurate because I'm sure they've done opinion poll and they will know that their support is stronger in some places rather than others and you get this general sense that really they just, they just didn't want to do a deal and decided to go for it on their own. Well that's right and also this week there was a rather sort of unintentionally hilarious leaked internal uh, TIG memo about how they didn't really want to cooperate, particularly with the Liberal Democrats, because they just want to replace them and crush them. So <laughs> that's unfortunately for them also made them sort of look like the bad guys, which is a bit unfortunate. But I think in on a more sort of serious sense, when you're playing small party politics, you have to recognise the different moments at which your competitors necessarily become your collaborators if you're going to achieve anything. And it's a much more sort of, it's a game in which you need to be much more agile than if you're inside the Labour Party that's just fighting for dominance or inside the Conservative Party that's that's just fighting for, for dominance. And of course, as Robert has explained also, under the PR system in which the European elections are held, if you're competing against people with whom you share 90% of your platform, it's really a disaster and it destroys your capability for making an impact. I mean, just to go back to this question of sort of who they really are, I think, you know, we will only know over time what this new party really is. You know, if you if they get more defections from the Labour Party or, if, for example, this group that Tom Watson, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, has been nursing as a sort of more moderate alternative, if in some way they turn into something with his group, that makes them into one kind of new political force. But if... 
a new leader of the Tory party turns out to be a very hardline Brexiter and you get more sort of fertile ground on that centre-right territory, then they become something else. So I think part of it is actually that we literally don't know what change UK is going to evolve into. And Robert, this really comes from the fundamental issue of when they started, because when the the MPs broke away, um, the initial batch of Labour MPs broke away, there were expected to be a lot more who didn't go with them. And that was because they were bickering and arguing about what they were meant to be. Are they meant to be the alternative Labour Party or are they meant to replace the Liberal Democrats? And they still haven't really answered that question until they do. This whole sense that the thing is just a bit chaotic and not really working, looks like it might continue. Yeah, and I think that's why what they're doing in the European elections is so problematic. I mean, let me offer you a simple example. I, I live in south-west London, which is probably as close to remain central as you can get in the UK. It's an area of the world where the Lib Dems have been traditionally quite successful. So if I were a remain-minded voter, who would, I want, who would I pick? Would I vote for Change UK at this moment? Or would I think, well, the Lib Dems, they're strong here, let's stick with them. I think the chances are in a lot of places that the Lib Dems are going to pick up those votes rather than Change UK, because there are more established brand. And this is their big shot at getting the momentum they need. Otherwise, they start faltering. If they don't have a good European election, then I think all the other issues that bedevil them at the moment are going to become only more problematic for them. People are going to say, well, you don't stand for anything else. It's a silly name. It's a bad logo. None of these people are quite good enough. All all the kind of things are going to happen to them anyway, but would be less problematic if they've got some momentum. If they could have come out of these elections with a position where you have been part of a major electoral shift that has helped push back the position on Brexit, that's momentum. That's a start. But the, the corollary is they know that would have pushed them towards further cooperation with the Liberal Democrats, which is something they don't want to do. And I think these elections, which could have been a major opportunity for them and given them the time and the breathing space to iron out the other kinds of questions that Miranda has so rightly identified, instead of which they could end up being the opposite. They could end up limiting their opportunities, limiting their time. And conservative moderates and Labour moderates who are looking at their parties and thinking, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe I don't belong in this anymore. I'm going to look at these people and go, well, they're doomed. And then you come to the secondary issue, which is them having to admit earlier this week that if there was a vote of confidence in the Conservative government, they might vote to sustain it because they're not ready for an election. So all the issues they don't want to be talking about are going to come to the fore if they don't have a good European election. Just to sort of temper our uh, very negative assessment, one thing I do think is very interesting about this nascent party is the way that they've been able to select some quite good candidates very quickly. Clearly, there are a couple of people who are likely to implode or be exploded by, you know, past tweets, etc. That that happens in every in every election. But I think that the way that they've tempted very good people who have become completely disillusioned with the current Labour leadership is actually very interesting. And I think it does demonstrate that there is appetite and room there for something. Because, you know, that there are particularly for some very good female candidates with a lot of experience of the worlds of, for example, the people I know in education and local government who are standing for them. And they're very good. They've got a lot to offer. So I, I think we shouldn't be entirely dismissive of the entire project. No, I do agree with that. But to offer the flip side of that, yeah. that this is a party that is meant to represent the moderate centre ground of politics and it's already been involved in at least three rows to do with race comments that, have, that are racially loaded. And that strikes me as just very poor management because I know that Change UK selected its candidates last weekend and had to get them out very quickly. And it feeds into this sense that despite a lot of these people being quite experienced politicians, they're not particularly good at actually running a party. But I think what you've got to think about 
about in all of these circumstances is this argument about being new. We're a new party. We're new. We're different. We're changing our broken politics. All these slogans that Change UK come out with cover up for the fact they haven't actually got any specific proposals to change our broken politics and change our plans, which means that every small mistake they make is magnified hugely because they've got nothing else to say. That's the problem is they can't shift any kind of narrative because the only things they've got to say is we're going to fix our broken politics, we're a new party and we're against Brexit. But on all these areas, they're falling down. So this is their problem. And the other thing to do with that, Robert, is also this sort of slight obsession that they seem to have with not being associated with what they call the tainted Lib Dem brand. And they are taking a historical lesson, in my view, the wrong one from David Owen and the SDP, because Owen looks back on the SDP and he says, we were pushed off track from our centre-left project by doing our alliance with the Liberal Party and then the eventual merger because that took us to being a centrist party rather than a centre-left alternative to Labour. But they're just reading it wrong. That's not what the Liberal Democrats are. What the Liberal Democrats could actually offer them at this juncture is an infrastructure and a fighting force on the ground that could help them gain that initial boost and that bit of momentum that they need. That's that's exactly right. But the other point is that they do actually have to remember the poor old voters who are their customers in this matter and you have to be able to distinguish yourself as a political party and i think any normal voter would struggle to explain how change uk are meaningfully different from the lib dems and they'll look at them and go why don't we understand it which one of you two should i vote for why are you not together so uh, I think they're failing to explain to the market why they are offering something different. And very briefly, finally, from both of you, do you think Change UK will end up with any MEPs after May the 23rd? Robert? Yes, I think they will end up with some MEPs. I also think we have to bear in mind that this is a moving contest. Things are going to evolve over the next few weeks, and we don't quite know how they will play out. So I think they'll get some. I think at the moment it's very hard to see these elections becoming the springboard that they were hoping it was going to be for them. Yes, and the party, of course, could address many of the things we've talked about. It could still improve its image, have clearer policies and produce uh, better messaging, branding, all the rest of it. And finally, Miranda? Yeah, I think, oddly... Um, we're kind of completely forgetting next week's round of local elections where Change UK are not even standing. And I think that'll be a kind of slightly uncomfortable contrast for them. I think they might pick up one or two MEPs. I think the Lib Dems might pick up one or two MEPs and the Greens tend to do well in these elections. But to actually present that as some sort of, you know, nascent movement for Remain in a second referendum is going to be really tough to do on the night. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to George, David, Robert and Miranda for joining us. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then do check out the FT's latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Caroline Grady. Until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.